Welcome to the Lawyer Life Podcast, where the personal, professional, and political intersect. Each week, we discuss a topic to help ourselves and other lawyers navigate our days with a little less stress and ideally a lot more fulfillment. On today's episode, we talk democracy. We're asking ourselves and author David Musgrop, are things okay out there? I'm Mike Anderson. And I'm Darlene Tonelli. Hello, Darlene. Good morning. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you. It's a lovely day. Spring has arrived in in Canada. I Finally. Think. Finally. <laughs> it's been a long winter. I am not going to I'm not going to say that this winter has not negatively impacted my uh my moods, but anyway, it's uh, it's we're coming out of it. I'm excited. We're coming out of it and and just as we come out of it, we're diving into a very deep topic today. So deep. democracy. But I think there's a lot that's led us to have this chat today. I mean, as I was thinking about it as we prepped, mostly I think about when we do our gripes and you have these like super gripes that are about <laughs> the fabrics of our society. I talk about a toaster. You talk about how everything's crumbling around us. Although you've discouraged me from having those gripes, I've tried to get a little bit more uh, low scale. But anyway, yes, those there have been a few. And this they're going to be translated nicely into today's discussion. Yeah. And we've we've equally had goods about how people are maybe for not the best reasons. Uh, maybe it's because things are not stable, but uh, people are starting to nerd out about watching political committees. And that's become kind of like office chat fodder over the past couple months. And so I think that's kind of related too. Yeah. I have never, I would say a couple of weeks ago, I took an hour and a half out of my day, which I had booked in my calendar to mm-hmm. watch a parliamentary committee, which never, <laughs> never before have I done that. So the last time yeah. I did that, I was staffing somebody on <laughs> the justice committee. Um, yeah. So things are changing and it's just kind of what's in the air right now in Canada, mm-hmm. around the world. And so today, we have a guest that shock of shocks is a non-lawyer, a first, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but a PhD and an amazing guy who I'll introduce in a second. But uh, David has a new book about how we can nourish democracy and keep the foundations of this whole thing solid. You know, a lofty goal. Good. That's gonna. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna hope to do that throughout the course of this podcast. Okay, so here's our introduction of David Muscrop. He is a writer, academic, and political theorist who studies democracy, digital media, and political decision-making. He holds a PhD from the University of British Columbia and is a postdoc fellow at the University of Ottawa, my alma mater, and David's as well. Uh, he's a frequent contributor to Maclean's, the Washington Post, the Global Mail, the National Post, CBC Radio. Is there any other media? I don't know. And his new book, Too Dumb for Democracy, tells us why we are making bad political decisions and how we can make better ones. Ladies and gentlemen, here's David Musgrop. Good morning. Welcome. Oh, wow. My mom wanted me to be a lawyer, by the way. <laughs> Instead, she got a fake doctor. <laughs> well, I think that we always say non-lawyer. I mean, there's a there's actually discussion in the legal profession about how to properly refer to people who aren't lawyers. And I witnessed a back and forth on a panel a couple of weeks ago with one person saying that non-lawyer was not a nice word. And the other person saying she felt it was the highest compliment. And I'm squarely <laughs> in that second camp. Um, and I don't think that I don't think there would be. Uh, there, I, I guess there are a lot of listeners who will have a political science background and have made that choice between going the law route or going into the uh, highly successful academic path that you have been on. So, 
it's uh, it's exciting, and I think that your perspective is uh, is not as far from some of the lawyers listening to this podcast as, as anyone might think. No, well, I hope. Well, I hope it can be useful. And to start with that, uh, I just want to ask you: Are are things okay out there? <laughs> we read your book. Yeah. Maybe I should ask if you're okay. But <laughs> oh, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm like a charcoal filter. You know, I just take it all in. <laughs> Uh, it is a great book, Too Dumb for Democracy, Why We Make Bad Pol- Political Decisions and How We Can Make Better Ones. Darlene and I have dove into this as uh, people very much interested in politics. You have a lot to say about where we're at right now. So where are we at? So I'm pretty nervous for a couple of reasons. Domestically, Canada's not in, in the worst shape, but there are some disconcerting trends. And, and one of them is, while the top level numbers on, say, trust and support for democracy are pretty good voter turnout. When you break it down, it looks a lot more um, disconcerting. And one of the reasons is there's a a gap between trusters and non-trusters, for instance, that is sort of, quote unquote, elite, non-elite. So there is a a, a group of alienated um, non-trusters. So that's a problem. There's a group of folks who uh, just simply don't think democracy is the way to go. It's not a majority, but it's big enough to be a, a, a concern. And when you break down voter turnout numbers, you find that you know if, if the turnout is 68%, that might represent 80% of older folks and, and 20% of younger folks. So there are these really significant divides. And then when you when you take it to its logical conclusion, you know collapses don't happen when one day everyone wakes up and says, "Well, we're done with this." It doesn't take a majority. It takes um, a plurality who are disconnected and don't believe in the system, et cetera, et cetera. And, and there's enough of that here that we ought to be worried. And then globally, it's, it's even worse. So we're in a global democratic recession. And so, and so finally, not only is all that a concern, there seems to be this prevailing attitude that democracy is an achievement that you unlock and then you've got it for good. You know, they can't take it away from you. Um, the history of democracy is the history of its collapse. And we could lose it just like every other civilization that was convinced they couldn't lose it eventually did. So, you know, there's reason to be deeply concerned. That's uplifting. Good morning. (laughs) Lawyers and non-lawyers. We thought the lawyers brought the uh, risk aversion and uh, sadness about the state of the world. But yes, it looks like we're all on the same page here. I like your term, global democratic recession. That's a very good way to put it. Yeah, and it's so. So this comes from there's a series of scholars who pay attention to to this, and you know there was in in the 1950s, post colonialism um, kicked off after the war. There was a rise in democracies around the world. The Soviet Union falls in the 1980s, early 1990s. There's another wave of democratization, sort of known as the third wave. And so there's a long period of democratization that happens globally between the 1950s and the 1990s. And that's when people start saying, well, we've done it. Congratulations, everyone. (laughs) We figured it out. We've reached, as Fukuyama said, the end of history. And the end of history is liberal democracy, human rights. And so we got a little bit complacent. And in, in recent years, we found that that's sort of unwinding. And the scary thing is, it's not just the sort of new democracies that are unwinding. It's also old democracies, what we call consolidated democracies, that are starting to slip as well. Uh, the United Kingdom, the United States, for instance, um, Italy. So, you know, we're paying really close attention because there aren't that dem- many democracies to begin with, <laughs> first of all. Um, 
So it wasn't even that long ago that there were hardly any, and we could end up potentially back in a situation where that's the case. So uh, it's something to watch at home, but but it's certainly something to watch abroad as well. The um, it, It's fascinating because it's so rare that I think that we have, and we'll get to to the circumstance that we all find ourselves in. We don't really have the time to sit back and worry about, you know, the, the fabric of our society uh, in our everyday. And, and, but there are some things that I think people kind of hold close to make themselves feel better. And one of those um, you mentioned in your book is the progress narrative mm-hmm. and how it, uh, it we all, oh, well, you know, the long line of, pro- you know, of progress is whatever. Uh, <laughs> you know, the quote better than me. Um, <laughs> but everybody feels like, oh, well, we'll, we'll get in the right place eventually. Like that's just, people take that for granted. And you say the progress narrative does, does not hold up. No. And, and in fact, I think it's, it might end up killing us. Take climate change, for instance. Climate change, I think, is the greatest existential threat humankind has faced in that tens of thousands of years. Um, we're no, we don't really have a, a hold on it yet, a handle on it yet. Uh, when the worst of it hits, it threatens to collapse our institutions we have this belief that technology will save us and it's introduced a certain amount of, of complacency because we focus on technological advancement, uh, but not really moral or ethical or democratic advancement, right? The, we don't look at the structures of governance when we think of, of advanced progress. We think of technology. So imagine this. Say we have an arc of, of technology, of progress, and it goes sort of at 60 degrees um, upward. Well, that's pretty good, right? It's just going up and it's everything's looking good. Say it suddenly and precipitously drops off because of, say, the worst of climate change. You know, looking back on that, would you call that 100 years of progress or would you call that a collapse, right? So yeah. my concern is when you start to zoom out on this arc of progress that we think continues 60 degrees into infinity, um, what you see is, well, it, you know, what happens when that levels out? What happens if you take the average of, of 500 years and project a couple hundred years into the future and not just the, the average of the last 100 years? And my concern is we've become complacent and, and, and that it's going to catch up to us. And this is where it intersects with the democracy thing. Uh, our institutions can't handle serious shocks. I mean, you, you see what happens when there's a refugee crisis or an economic collapse or et cetera, et cetera, right? People start losing faith in the system. They start losing trust. They start believing governments are less legitimate. And we haven't really had a serious crisis um, in, in a long time. So that concerns me a great deal is that we're, our democracy is already a bit unhealthy. What happens when there's a shock to the system from, say, the worst of climate change? And so as you're well laid out, you know, we're potentially nearing a cliff or, you know, um, what, what, what's fascinating about your book is you, you take that setup and then you talk about how personally, you know, there, there are, there are decisions, there are things we do every day that can either help remedy this problem or can help perpetuate it. And, um, you know, you talk about how the brain works and so on. And, and I'd love to get into that with you. But um, I really like the example uh, that you give, which everybody can relate to, of like, who's winning, um, you know, our internal struggles when it comes to decision making and the decision making eventually that affects our politics and society. And the example you give is the alarm clock yeah. in the morning. And it's who wins the battle between the me that set the alarm the night before with these great intentions thought it through, knows what's need to happen? Uh, or does the me in the morning that when the alarm goes off, I want to throw it across the room and fall back asleep? Who wins, right? And, th- and that example, I think, is so laid out well 
the struggle that we all have. Do we want to do the easy thing or do we want to do the harder thing we need to do? Um, expand. <laughs> There's this myth of the human being as a single thing, right? That, you know, I am, I am me, you are you, it's a thing, you look at it, it's coherent, it's one. And yet internally, we're divided all the time against ourselves. And so, you know, you can call that emotional versus rational, you can call it unconscious versus conscious, there's a whole bunch of things going on. But the point is that we're sort of struggling internally all the time. And what's interesting, though, is we strive for coherence. It's not just that we're incoherent. It's that we truly, deeply want to believe that we are coherent anyway. So if you say to someone, okay, what party do you like? And they say party X and you say Y, they're going to give you reasons that they believe are true, that they want to be true. You know, rational reasons. Well, like their policy on this, the leader's experienced, et cetera, et cetera. Often what we find is when you push on that, you find that it's, it's just a bunch of bull that there's something else driving it, right? I just like that person or my parents voted that way, et cetera, et cetera. But we will rationalize our way to explaining it because we desperately want to have a true coherent explanation. A great example of that is there was a study in the 1980s in the US over um, social uh, welfare and they asked respondents, you know, do, do you support giving money to folks? And they said, oh, no, not really because moral hazard, you know, if we give money to people, they're not going to want to work. And people believe that reason. But when researchers pressed them, what they realized was people were actually just racists. They didn't want to give money to racialized folks. And so they believed that it was moral hazard driving their decision, but it wasn't. It was racial bias. And we do things like that all the time. What you said is just so true, that people are, are grasping for this sense that they understand the issue. And I think as the issues get more and more and more and more complicated certain parties are getting more and more adept at just taking the simple message and almost weaponizing it back against the people trying to do this. So the people are doing something in good faith, but you know, the example that I use is um, this, this fascination with getting rid of the debt and this idea. Yeah. And I, I've real, and you know, getting, we don't want to be deficit spending and stuff. Like my view on that is that um, that's a really easy way to say we don't want the party to spend money on things we don't value, right? So we don't like right. universal childcare, so we say we care about saving money on debt and deficit. Um, but when I break it down, I mean, I'm from Alberta originally, and the politics in Alberta are quite different than in uh, Toronto, Ontario. So in my family political discussions, these things come up a lot. Um, but one of the things I've noticed is that, you know, it's very compelling to think we understand debt, you know, we understand that you don't overspend your credit card in the month, right? We should, that's bad. Um, but then when you really push on it, you say, well, you know, where would most families be without a mortgage? Mm -hmm. You know, there's certain good debt and then there's bad debt. And suddenly this, this aversion to deficit spending becomes something that maybe you have to think a little more critically about. Do you think that in with all of that kind of, um, with that impulse to make a good decision and this vast access to information like can people make good decisions or do they have to cling to these sound bites and these sort of little things that they know i mean we can make good political decision that's the good news people have phenomenal capacity when you give them a chance but the institutions around us and the environment in which we live aren't conducive to that right it's mm -hmm. too much information coming at us too quickly from too many places we don't always know who to trust 
There are strategic actors that want to knock us off our game. They know how to exploit our cognitive shortcomings. You know, they they know that that we're often irrational and emotional and don't have the time or energy or incentive or resources to sit down and try to make rational decisions for which we can provide true reasons. Because, and and it all comes. I think it ultimately comes down to this: is you know we're we're, we're no more natural good political decision makers than we are naturally good at hitting a fastball. You know, it's something you've got to learn how to do. It's a skill you got to develop. Um, and we're being asked to do it in really tough circumstances. So it's like trying to hit a fastball on skates, right? <laughs> it's a good luck with that. <laughs> and so we can do it, but, you know, we've got to not just want to do it ourselves. We also need elites, leaders, et cetera, et cetera, to want us to do better. And, and therein is is the heart of the, of the challenge. How, you know, everybody can relate to that. Everybody's lives especially because of technology and so on, are moving at such an incredible pace. Uh, how do you solve that issue so that everybody's in a position uh, to wake up, you know, refreshed in the morning and ready to take in in-depth, read all party platforms and, and become uh, these uh, evolved uh, decision makers? I mean, it's an uphill battle. And, and you know, my approach is not to let the... Um, perfect become the enemy of the good because we we can do better without being perfect and that would be fine and we could carve out more space for citizens to participate in government without forcing everyone to be a politician you know i don't want to be a politician full time i want i want to live my life and that's that's true of lots of people so you know the sort of the, the stuff that i talk about in the book is look 15 minutes a day which is less than the amount of time to watch a a sitcom goes a long way little practices like uh, making sure you've got a variety of information sources, having people around that you disagree with, carving out that time to make sure you can actually dig into something. doesn't have to be everything, but something that you care about deeply. Um, recognizing that emotion is going to play a role in your decision making and, and, and sitting with that and, and uh, processing it rather than pretending that you're the ultimate rational being. Uh, no one is, by the way, including judges. There's lots of literature out there on how judgments um, by judges can be affected by this stuff. So it's not like, um, you know, there is a mythical class of people who is immune. We're all um, susceptible. Although being aware of these things, just being aware of them helps address them immediately, right? So a little goes a long way. Now, that's the individual side. The the government side or the institutional side is we need to create opportunities for for citizens to participate in self-government routinely. Things like citizens' assemblies, where you randomly select citizens to come in and, and advise on or even make policy and law, or participatory budgeting, which is effectively the same thing except for allocating um, budget funds. And that is not, you know, it's not like you would do it all the time, but like once or twice in a lifetime, you'd have a chance to do that. And there's all kinds of public goods that emerge from that. Lots of trust, lots of legitimacy, civic capacity, representative policy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there are things that we can do. That That's the good news. But you've got to be aware that there's a problem and adopt strategies to break it. And, and we all do that, right? We call them kludges. Well, you talk about that in the book, and I was struck by it. It says, to make good political decisions, we need to switch off autopilot. Um, and then it says, and interrogate ourselves a little more than we are used to. And I think, isn't that just so fundamental? Because you've got to get to the point where um, we all have, and Mike and I on this podcast spend a lot of effort trying to sort of just question some of the stories that we all tell ourselves, you know, mm -hmm. the stories, even the story that I need a secure job because I'm a parent, 
And even if I hate my job, I need to have that job because I have responsibilities. That's a very, very powerful story that is told mm-hmm. in society. And sometimes bad decisions um, that are made on the political level seem tied to those stories, right? Or, or, or tribalism, which you also talk about. I don't know if you call it tribalism, but and thinking, yeah, this is this is the way we do it. That's I, we were. It's sort of the most seven or eight most uh, expensive words in business from our perspective. Like this is the way we've always done it. Mm-hmm. But yet in politics, that is so, it's not questioned. So what you're describing is is what's known as path dependency, which is basically we tend to follow the path we've always followed because it's the path of least resistance. It's just what you do. Mm-hmm. And the example I give on the book is, you know, imagine yourself marooned on an island, you know, and you've got, you've got a hatchet. Uh, you know, you've got to make your way inland to make shelter. So you cut a path with the hatchet off the beach into the middle of the island. But now you want to go back to the beach the next day to try to flag down a a passing ship. Are you going to cut a new path? No, you're going to trod the same one you already you'd gone through the day before. And you're going to keep doing that. And as you do it, it becomes easier and it becomes more familiar. It doesn't mean it's the best path. It doesn't mean that there's not a better one off to the side. Um, but you keep going because it's easy. And and that's who we are. We take the path of least resistance, both cognitively and, and, and behaviorally. Um, but that, you know, that's the autopilot. And the problem with that is um, it stifles innovation or changes. It, it encourages you to go along and get along. It locks in all kinds of cognitive biases that lead to, to outcomes that are effectively rationalized, a bunch of bull. Uh, and we don't like kicking off of that because it takes effort and makes us uncomfortable. So, you know, in some sense, I'm asking people to make themselves uncomfortable. Um, That's a good business practice. It's the reason consultants exist, for instance. Um, It's a good personal practice in your own life to to resist stagnation. And it's a great political practice. But it's difficult because it means you've got to question your own motives. You know, why do I hate this politician? Or why do I really like this politician? So there's data on this that suggests that um, um, a scholar... um, from SFU, Mark Pickup did this, and they found that perceptions of the economy were affected, were, were moderated by party support. So if you're president, this was in the US, if a president you liked was in power, the economy looked like it was doing better than if the other president was in power, right? Gosh. That's, you know, and so, and we're all susceptible to this. And it's not just it, it is reality that gets warped by our partisan preferences. I mean, just factual reality. That's a pretty serious problem. And then you realize really quickly that we're actually living in different worlds perceptually, even for even fact-based things. This is a very, you, you have the great example in your book about the flower versus the beehive. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you walk us through that? So imagine you're walking down the road and uh, you know, I stop and say, "Oh, look! It's a, it's a, it's a flower. It's yellow. It's got petals. It's going to." And you look and say, "Oh no, that's not a flower. That, that's a beehive." Now, it matters whether or not it's a flower or a beehive because if you're going to go stick your face in it, um, the objective reality of what it is is going to make a difference. <laughs> but the the process of of deciding whether or not it's a flower or a beehive is a process of us exchanging information and agreeing or not. And then you say, I say, it's a beehive. And you say, no, 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 it is. It's got a, a green, what do you call it, a stem or trunk, whatever you call it. It's got these yellow flowers. That's what we call a flower. There's no, there's no, you know, nothing's buzzing around it. And I say, oh, I see, I understand now. Uh, now, you know, we have to have that basic level of agreement 
about what's out there in the world to be able to have a conversation about politics because otherwise we're just talking past each other all the time. And, and partisan politics often encourages that because we don't want to establish that basic reality. We want to bash each other over the heads until somebody wins. We are meat popsicles. We are, we are fallible uh, hunks of, of organic matter. We think of ourselves as grand and noble and, and perfectible, but, but we're not. We're subject to, you know, if, if anyone's ever been hangry, you know that you change based on things that you would prefer didn't direct your behavior, but they do all the time. We become different people. Hence the need for good institutions, because good institutions won't, won't make us perfect. They won't fix all of our foibles, but they will make it more likely that we get good outcomes than, than bad outcomes in general in the long run. And that's why I always like to focus on institution building. I also think that there's something to be said, and again, something we talk a lot about on this podcast, just for the idea of constantly building up your um, human potential, your human capacity to deal with things without bringing in your own baggage, for example. What's interesting is that even becoming aware that cognitive biases exist mm-hmm. and, and then getting a sort of a list of a couple of them and being told that, hey, look, here's how emotion plays a role in, in how you think about things uh, starts the, the process of, of helping people do better. Because people are, are fundamentally actually pretty decent and have a lot of capacity when when they've given a shot. But, but you know, your point, I think, is important because it brings us to this question of, well, how do you do that and how do you incentivize it? Because in a, in a liberal society, which is hyper-individualized, you know, it's hard to make community-based arguments of, well, here's mm. why you should do something that's good for everyone. And you're like, yeah, but it takes a lot of time trying to get through the day. And so you've got to push back with, okay, well, here's some reasons why it's good for everyone. Oh, by the way, here's some incentives and maybe even some resources. So one of the things I push on in the book quite a bit is, look, like if we're going to do this and we should, we ought to get the resource uh, redistribution and and the incentives right. Because not only is there an individual justice argument, everyone should be able to get through the day and have enough to live, et cetera, et cetera. It's in everyone's interest, the communal interest in terms of stability and legitimacy and trust that people have the capacity and the resources and the incentives to do better. And so this is why often I I try to push and I find, um, you know, some solidarity across the spectrum on this for a more egalitarian um, economic and political space, because it's ultimately that serves everyone's interests. It, I think one way to that I'm realizing, you know, as we talk and as as I read the book and and thinking back to you know uh, uh, previous episodes we've had on other topics, that seems like there's a general secret sauce <laughs> to you know that I'm taking direction from your book at the end when you're prescribing like how our structures and institutions must change and and how we need to embrace that change ourselves. So much of success in the personal life and the professional life. And and you're saying as well in the political life is slowing down, mm-hmm. having an abundance of time, embracing diversity, and um, you know being intentional about the way that you act, make decisions, and so on. So pushing back so much against the speed and and the times that we live in. But what are ways that people can encourage that in their own lives or encourage their institutions to embrace this? You know, it is in the end what everybody talks about. <laughs> and yet it seems so elusive. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, part of it is just, you know, at the, at the individual level, it is creating protected space for some end that you think is ultimately important. So 
you know, clearing out whatever it is, 15 minutes a day, 20 minutes a day to say, look, I'm going to consciously and deliberately work on this thing because in the long run, I think it's going to make me better at something, making decisions or, or being aware of what's going on around me and, and then plugging, you know, um, uh, unplugging for 20 minutes or 30 minutes and, and creating that space. And, and look, sometimes that has to be helped with, I don't know, um, one of those apps that turns your social media off or turning your phone off or putting your phone under a pillow or leaving it at home uh, or reading a hard copy newspaper. I mean, you know, the, you do it however you do it. And I don't, I don't care. I mean, but the choice is to, to, like you said, to be deliberate about it. Uh, but then also to adopt some of these strategies. It doesn't have to be all of them. It won't have to be perfect. But to adopt some of these strategies of saying, well, you know what? I'm going to read some news I disagree with. Or I'm going to find some folks in my life who think differently than me. Or I'm going to make sure that if I'm in a position of power at a boardroom, it's not full of white dudes. And, you know, that's not tokenism. That is building a culture of of diversity that becomes self-sustaining because now we've, we're transferring power to traditionally marginalized groups who are then going to be able to be a part of that self-sustaining diverse ecosystem. Because not only, again, is it the just thing to do and the decent thing to do, it is um, better. Like we, we, this is lots of evidence that suggests that, that diverse groups tend to do better at, at things like problem solving, right? So, you know, there, that is a commitment to changing the structure by, by doing, you know, little things that you can do. Um, one of the things, for instance, I do is I'm very careful to avoid um, mantles, you know, man panels, <laughs> um, yes. and, and to suggest people for things when I do media commentary or panels um, who, you know, smart people I know from typically marginalized groups who don't get picked for all kinds of reasons because maybe they're not putting up their hand or maybe that the journalist calling me just doesn't even know they exist because of traditional power structures that marginalize them. You know, just saying like, look, call this person, <laughs> right? It sounds like a small thing, but now you're contributing to a sort of significant transfer of, of power and authority. So, you know, the, the but the big takeaway here is um, we're not powerless. And if we think we're powerless and that everything's overwhelming and a foregone conclusion in the direction of awfulness, then we're going to be discouraged from doing anything. We're not going to do anything at all. So it's important to know that there are things you can do. Those things do matter um, and to maintain a sort of lens of hope. So despite all of the you know concerns I raised, including at the, at the start of the podcast, I, I remain utterly hopeful. I was waiting for you to say that the uh, strategy was to play Eye of the Tiger on repeat, which you mentioned in your book as a get yourself <laughs> pumped up, get out there. I don't know. My hockey team wants to listen to Eye of the Tiger on repeat for 45 minutes in a row before a game, uh, which yeah. was oh, hilarious. It was absolutely uh, hilarious. But on that note... Um, I think that so so Dave, thank you so much. You're gonna hang out uh, while we do our goods and gripes. Um, so we'll take a break and we'll be right back after this. The Lawyer Life Podcast is brought to you by Inter Alia Law, experienced legal counsel when and where you need us. To learn more about Interalia, visit the website at spelled I-N-T-E-R-A-L-I-A-Law.com. Thank you. And we are back with our goods and gripes. Uh, goods are things we want to promote and support. Gripes are things that annoy us. Darlene. 
Would you like to go first? Yes, let's see. My, uh, I was at an artificial intelligence conference this week, which uh, is kind of interesting, actually, um, for David's area of study. Um, and I was thinking it could potentially apply to politics, but we learned the basics of it. And I went up to the speaker at the end of, of his speech, and I said, that was a really good basic explanation of uh, artificial intelligence and neural networks and all this stuff, deep learning. Um, and I said, you, I was following and he pulls out this book. This is a, a lawyer named Sam Ip from Oslers. Um, he pulls out a book which was called Neural Networks for Babies, which I believe had informed <laughs> his presentation. And I was like, Sam, that's fantastic. Maybe you should call that Neural Networks for Lawyers and you know, go on the road with this show because it's uh, it was very simple, very good. I will not be reading it to my children, but it worked uh, for me. <laughs> So I, I recommend picking it up if you're struggling with these concepts because uh, it was a very good um, explanation. Well, that's Why don't lovely. You do your good, or maybe Dave has a good. Yeah, Dave, you have a good. I do, and it's. Um, I have been utterly amazed by the wonderful support of everyone around this book, and, and including you folks. Um, so the uh, it is, you know, people say humbling, but they don't really mean humbling. You know, I am humbled, but they're never actually humbled. I am um, delighted and a little bit embarrassed at how, how lovely everyone has been uh, with this book. And that is my good. It is, it is the most touching thing to go take up space in the world and to have people uh, receive it and be really, uh, really kind. So that is my good. Oh, Did Mike tell you our podcast rule about using the word "lovely" in each show? <laughs> are you not supposed? I to use it apparently know. too much. Not too much, just as a oh, it, no. it's a thing. It's one of our things, oh. and Dave did it, so you don't have to do it this time, Mike. <laughs> if you can, if you can uh, help yourself. <laughs> uh, do you have a gripe, Dave? I do. It's the pettiest, smallest yes, thing. Yes, 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 yes. I have a certain brand of television. I won't say what, and I turn it on. And it turns itself off, and I turn it back on, and it turns itself off, and I turn on the receiver, and the TV turns mm-hmm. on, and then it turns itself off. Because TVs these days <laughs> <laughs> are oh, so smart no. that they don't turn on. Because, and you know what it is? It's the operating system on the TV that's bugged out. <laughs> and it drives me nuts. Because it takes me an extra 45 seconds before I can watch TV or play video games. Perfect gripe. Yeah. Textbook. <laughs> Yeah. That is textbook. That's yes, textbook might gripe. Yeah, I think you might have a remote control issue. But anyway. <laughs> Mike is also uh, extremely efficient at tech support. So no. after this call, maybe he can, <laughs> he can help you out with that. Yeah, we'll have a support call after. We're all, we're... <laughs> okay, thank you. Appreciate it. Okay, well, this was lovely. Dave, we really appreciate you hopping on and uh, lending us your wisdom and time. The book is great. Um, I know I, I, not only because, uh, I know you from back in the day in school, but, um, you know, I, I so thoroughly enjoyed reading it and I think it's an important one for our time. So thanks for hopping on the pod. Oh, it was uh, my entire pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank cool. You. Well, uh, Darlene, I guess we will talk soon. Talk soon. That's it for this week's episode of LLP. Thanks to Interalia Law for presenting the podcast and to Nick Fowler for composing and performing our music. See our show notes for his website. Don't forget, we love feedback. Please comment in the review section or subscribe or like. We'd appreciate it greatly. That's it. Talk soon.